The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome once again to NDE Radio with me, Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening by podcast or through the archive of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel. Our guest today, Suzanne Seymour, was gifted with a remarkable near-death experience following a gruesome death at age 12 when she was hung by her scarf from a ski lift rope for some 45 minutes. Amazing as her NDE was and her miraculous healing from her broken neck and paralysis, her mother asked her not to tell the story for fear she would dwell on her death. Suzanne promised her mother she would not tell others about her NDE and kept that promise for 42 years until after her mother's death. It was then she finally wrote the story in her book, My Secrets from Heaven, A Child's Trip to Heaven and Back. But keeping that secret did not interfere with the lessons she learned in heaven, as shown by her calling as as an RN. Her 25-year career covered many diversified fields of healing, including clinical nursing instructor, anatomy and physiology instructor, and as a county case manager. Suzanne suffered a heart attack shortly after writing her book and was saved yet again on an Easter Sunday, confirming her purpose in telling this story. Suzanne, welcome to NDE Radio. Oh, thank you, Lee. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a treat for us as well, and, and uh, yours is an amazing story. Um, Suzanne, it becomes easier to understand the promise your mother asked of you when people realize her story is of a family who immigrated from Nazi Germany to the USA after miraculously surviving the Holocaust. They'd finally found a beautiful life here when their daughter suffered, their daughter, you being you, suffered this horrific accident. And many Americans today have forgotten the horrors of fascism. So tell us a little about your your family's danger uh, of hiding uh, Jews while living in Nazi Germany. Well, in those days, a political party had overtaken the country and they became your, um, you know, they burned the books. There were people just had to obey whatever, um, whatever they said you had to do. And um there's, there was just so much around it. It was really a survival mode. And what exactly do you want me to pinpoint around that? Um, well, they were, they were of a Christian background, but, and correct. so, and uh, I know, uh, was it your grandfather who refused to join the Nazi party? Yes, yes they both did. Hmm. Um, if you refused, they usually executed you. Um, they came, they came to their homes and they, they took your family out on the front, in the front yard. You could either sign and join, or if you didn't, they executed you. Both of them were, um, engineers. And so they were, they were spared because they were useful. So if, mm. you, if they had a use for you, they would use you until there was no longer a use for you. So, right. But they, uh, but your, uh, the, the fact that they were engineers meant that, uh, they had a skill in configuring ways to hide Jews who were, who would have been executed had they been caught. Of course, they'd have been executed too for, for hiding the Jews, but, but, uh, 
describe a little, I know you don't know a, a lot about it because they didn't want to talk to you about it, but uh, from what you gathered, how did they, uh, how did they hide um, these Jewish r- refugees? Well, I, I think those will be secrets forever because um, they had, they had their, their, they were constantly being watched. Your neighbors watched you and reported you. Um, if you were reported as not complying with, with um, any type of law that was passed down, or if you questioned anything, you were reported. So neighbors um, were turning on neighbors. Um, but, you know, if they tried to hot, many people were, are always trying to do a good thing. I, I really don't know. To be honest, how how my grandfather? I can only imagine because they're very they're very exact and they're very methodical. So I'm sure they had to think it through with great thought and care, because their lives lives were at risk. Now there was another story that I, I was in your book, and I thought it was really fascinating. Maya was um, your grandmother, is that right? Mm-hmm. My mother's mother, yeah, my grandmother. Your mother's mother. And she uh, was sent to the country because uh, I guess she'd been buried alive under the rubble of her bombed apartment. Is that? No, they, they would send the children from the city out into the country and sep- they were separated from their parents. So my mother was sent out on, a, on trains and they would send them with you know, strangers to live out in the country while the bombings were happening um, mm-hmm. just to try to keep the, the children safe. So my, she, my grandmother stayed in the city and she was buried alive there because they, you know, the buildings were three stories of, you know, apartments and um, she was buried alive. Yeah. They were bombed several times. But one time as a child, when she was, uh, she wandered into the woods and came across a cat lady. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. What you know, what you know well, about that story. My mother was alone a lot because people were frustrated during the war. And she said, you know, they just left her to be by herself. And no one called her home for dinner or washed her hair or really took care of, of anyone. Because it, it was just a survival mode. So my mother wandered in the woods and um, often. And one day she wandered pretty far out there. And she saw this old shack. And it kind of reminded me of Hansel and Gretel except inside was an absolutely lovely woman who had many, many, many cats. And it was actually a woman who never had children of her own. So to see this um, unkempt and, and, and orphaned almost kind of child, you know, they, they became an instant and there, there was an instant bond. And, Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so that was, that was Rosal. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they took care of each other. You know, she got to nurture my mom and my mom got to um, bring her the joy of having a child in the home. Yes. And uh, along with at least a hundred cats. And a hundred cats. Yeah. <laughs> Russell had a lot of cats. She loved, loved, loved company. Well, I guess we should move on to um, your family moves to this, to this country. And one day your family decided to go skiing. And uh, you fought with your mom about knotting the scarf around your neck. Tell us about that premonition you had. Oh, it's interesting. I was, you know, as as a young girl, um, I was, I was, I was pretty obedient. Um, I didn't really argue with my mother. She was a strong natured person. (laughs) 
and strong disciplinarian. So we were going skiing and she asked me to put my scarf on, which I did. And then I looped it through once and she asked me to loop it through again and make a knot. And something in me that was undescribable or unexplainable. Did you ever have a feeling like you just don't want to do it or you don't want to go and you don't know why? You just get this strong instinct and and you can't ignore it. So I argued with her. I, I nicely said no. And then she persisted. Yes, no, yes, no. Until, um, until you know, she, she, she was like, what's the matter with her? And everyone started to notice because we were arguing. And it was going to ruin the day um, because it was just, just arguing about it. I tried to stand my ground. But she insisted and said, you know, you're going to ruin the day. And so you better do it. And with force, you know, she exerted her parental force. And so I did comply. Mm. But it made me absolutely physically ill. And I thought that was so strange. Um, I can I can remember every step walking up the driveway. And just being so confused as to why I so strongly didn't want that tide. So no. premonitions are very real um, for many people. Yes, and, and should be heated <laughs> when when you have what <laughs> when you have them. Yes. And, and, as as your story is about to show. Yes. So little you we know little did we know why. <laughs> so this is January nineteenth, nineteen seventy five, and you guys get uh, go out with your skis, and you come to what looks like a ski lift. It sounded primitive, but uh, go ahead it and describe it. Was very it. primitive, yeah. Well, they lived in a community, um, and it was it was a small gated community, and they put up a ski lift, and they don't make them anymore because of all the um, unsafe features. So it was a tow rope with which had a pulley system, and it had gears, and it was just in a, the 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 gears were housed in a little shack. So we paid attention to that because, of course, my grandfather was there and he's an engineer and he went and checked the whole system. And because no one was there and and someone had a maintenance man was locking up because it was the middle of a blizzard. So he was locking up the clubhouse. My mom asked him to please turn on the ski lift and he did. And he said, just bring the key back when you're done and turn it off. So it was that that relaxed of an atmosphere. It wasn't a a, a ski hill that was for public use, mm. um, and it was just my family there that day. So okay, and so, so here I am with my knot and my scarf in a blizzard on a ski hill. <laughs> and <laughs> <Very> you said <laughs> you, you say you you took hold of this thing, and yeah. you felt your head jerk forward with a force. I that, took that, hold of it, and it took hold of me. Yes, oh. we bonded. <laughs> yeah, well, tell tell how that scarf bonded and what it did to you. Right, so the, the rope was nylon, and it was frayed. And I, it's just a simple rope. It was very strong and fast, though. So when you did hang on to it, it, it did jerk you forward. And I, it, it was powerful. So my, my scarf was hanging. It had fringe, and when I was near the bottom, all of a sudden I noticed the fringe started to, to, to get caught in the rope because it spins spirally. So the, so spirally, the, the scarf started wrapping in it and I really didn't panic. I thought, Oh, I can unpeel it. 
and it just kept going and going. And all of a sudden you start to realize, wow, time is of the essence here. There is an end of the rope and an end of the line. Um, I only have so much time. And before I knew it, it was completely wrapped to where it was so tight. I was getting asphyxiated. And the whole time I was slamming into these posts that, that held the rope, they were like telephone poles, but metal poles. So my head would hit in each of the poles. And, um, and so it was a really, just a really good hanging Lee and Mm. a a great way for execution. (laughs) I was, there was no way out. And um, at the end of the, at the end of the rope, there was no safety switch. There was no one manning the booth. Um, nothing. So it was going to be me and could, you know, my head going into this little hole that was cut out where the rope enters to, to go into the gears. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'm either going to be decapitated or I'm going to be smashed into bits when I hit the house where, you know, the little shack, something's, there's no way out. So at that moment, um, I realized, you know, that my death was, was right in front of me. Mm. Now your family's down at the bottom of the hill watching all this happen. Yeah. They, we had just finished a long hike an extensive hike. They didn't bring their skis. We must've trucked through about three feet Two, it. I guess for my size legs, it felt like three feet of snow. Of course it wasn't that much, but um, we were good hikers and we were, we were exhausted. So my parents and my grandparents stayed at the bottom of the hill just to watch my brother and I take a few runs down the hill if possible. And um, my brother was behind me, but it was a far way behind me. And right before, I do remember turning around and saying, let go. I, I just didn't want him to witness what I, what I felt was going to happen. wasn't going to mm-hmm. be good. And your brother, his name's Robert. Right. Yes. Said, I'm coming. Don't worry, Sue. I'm coming. He tried, you know, he was younger. He tried to, he saw that I was being violently thrown on the ground and, and, and hung and crashing into these poles. And he wanted to desperately um, do what he could at, I think he was nine years old. So, Oh dear. Yeah. It was just a little boy. He was so trying you're- to save his sister. So your neck was being crushed and it was actually broken, wasn't it? Yeah. And, um, and all the skin on my neck was, there was so much friction. I had no skin on my neck mm -hmm. and I had, I had two large lumps on both sides of my temples that were the size of softball, uh, well, baseballs. And, um, and just, you know, the, there was just, no reason I really should be alive today. There's no scientific explanation. So, Mm. Um, yeah. Scarf came loosely and no one knew how my father, my grandfather at the bottom of the hill, I remember they saw the scarf. They told me they saw the scarf come flying in a straight line, a perfectly straight line at the top of the rope. How could the scarf have possibly gotten off my neck go through these gears and then fly in a perfectly straight line down the hill. And that was what convinced the almighty engineer that he was. Um, He knew that this was something very, very supernatural. He, he knew there was no 
explanation. It was impossible for that to happen. It That's was, right. It was because really extraordinary. It would have had to have decapitated you to do that if it, if it weren't for something yeah, else. And the scarf was so tangled and then the gears would have tangled it further. And it was perfectly straight. Like the fringe and everything hung perfectly straight down like a flag, like a victory flag. Right. And that was a sign to them of something. They didn't know what, but they knew that there was something at work that was much bigger than them. So there you are, you're unconscious at the bottom of the tow, tow rope booth. And uh, yeah. then someone yeah. approaches you. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I, I remember, you know, okay, so the, the horror now happened. I don't, I don't really know what happened because I must have lost consciousness at some point right before. But I remember laying in the snow and looking over and there were these beautiful trees. And then here comes this light and, and, a, and warmth. And it felt like a rescue and, and it felt like a dad. So I, I felt that loving father energy. I thought maybe it is my dad. And then the light got brighter and brighter. And I knew with every, when I saw the light, I knew that that light was going to save me. I knew that it was going to comfort me. I knew it was coming for me. I knew it came to help me. And um, I thought it was going to be my family. And, and there came uh, the, these hands that reached forward and he kneeled in front of me. And he just, in all, all this magnificent glory, I, I got to see, and, and he, he let me know who he was. And, and he said he was Jesus. And, um, and I, it was kind of telepathic too, where everything about him was communicated to me in a, in a moment, everything you need to know, every question you have is, is answered through his eyes in a moment. Um, and for me, his hands were just, just so important because they, they held me. And, and in that embrace, I, I felt like everything would be all right. And, uh, and it was, it really was. And, and with him came two angels. Um, I didn't know what to call them because they were males. And later in life, people would talk about angels. And they always talked about females with these beautiful iridescent colors. And these were two, two male looking and they almost looked like warriors. They had, um, you like shielded breast shields on or something. And they had like work. And I thought they looked like work boots, but they were, some sort of a boot and they looked just very, very strong. And, and I couldn't, under, and one was tall, one was short. And I remember as they walked towards me, one was tripping a little bit and the other one was almost like he had his shoelaces untied. And so, the, <laughs> and they made me giggle. They made me giggle because they were, they, they were just so disarming even though they looked so powerful, they were very disarming. Um, I actually, I actually had the time of my life meeting all of them. So um, you said you thought one was at least 10 feet tall. Yeah. I, I mean, I tried in my book to describe for, for people as best I could. Um, he, and so 10 feet to me means larger than a normal human. 
um, much larger than a normal human, somewhere in there. I would say, I mean, not giant, like 20 feet, but it was like about 10. Yeah, about 10 feet. Uh And did Jesus look like the image that, you know, is popular of Jesus with long, long brown hair? I, I thought he looked, yeah, yeah. There's, there's many pictures of Jesus and I hadn't seen any as far as like what, you know, what the typical Jesus would look like because he wasn't really part of our home at all. So, um, who I saw later when I did see pictures, sometimes I see a picture and it really resembles who I saw. It was more like I, I saw him first and then later I saw pictures. Do you remember his eyes? Um, the first thing I noticed, Lee, to be honest, was the love that came from his eyes and the light and the feeling, the feeling that his eyes gave me. Um, yeah, but most his eyes were, were the most gorgeous eyes because of that love. And his hands, his hands just, and, and I think about hands and how we use hands to shake hands and hug and hands are so important and we can hurt people with our hands and just his hands were so extraordinarily, they just transmitted so much safety and peace and warmth and home and oh, it was, it was just it was just something I've, I can't even, it's very hard to describe. It was, it was Mm. magnificent. In your book, you say his hands connected with every cell in my body. Everything. That's every cell in my body, every cell. And they carry like information in, in that love. There's information while he's touching you, while he's holding you, it goes so quickly. You get this, you get this, blast of well I did I got this blast of of information of all about him all about myself that he knew everything about me everything about my family everything was connecting um everything was just one it was like one one big ball of information um questions everything just had you just knew there was everything was connected there were answers for everything there was reasons for everything there were it was it was just this brilliance that came through his hands, um, and you knew he understood every single thing about you. And yeah, every cell in my body, I I feel like right down to your DNA was touched. <laughs> it was magnificent. <laughs> it was like I was so excited to tell, and here I was a bloody mess afterwards, and and probably my neck was probably twisted and my limbs. In places that were, you know, like Gumby, like a rubber doll, but I, I just couldn't stop the joy that I had from that. There was so much joy. It was baffling when they found me. <laughs> Who are you talking to? My mother said, I heard someone talking to her and she's so, and my mother said, why are you so happy? They They just, you know. And they knew, they knew because the scar flying down gave them a heads up and they mm-hmm. knew. And, and yet the terror of it for them was something they just couldn't get past. Yeah. It took them some 45 minutes to get to you, didn't it? Right. 
we sort of timed it out um, because when I wrote the story, I had to find a way to describe everything. Um, and so I actually went back to the Hill and I brought a measuring tapes and we, you know, we tried to, we tried to show how many steps it takes to go up the hill from the bottom and then include the snow. And of course, here comes my science and my engineering family. And we try to figure it all out. We, we estimated about from, for them to get to the top of the hill, it would have been about 45 minutes. No, no earlier. So I always, I always gave times or measurements the minimal, the minimal. So, one of the things that struck me when I was in your book, you, you described the wings of the angels like uh, yeah. big soft beds. Yeah, tell us like, about that. Like a down comforter, the feather beds, and I think, gosh, you know, when I came back, do the, do we really remember angels when we made feather beds? The 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 angels' wings were um were truly. Uh, and they, but they were strong. So, but it, it had a feather-like quality that felt soft. Everything felt comforting, just just comforting. Everything about them was comfort and and joy and and um, tremendous peace and lots of information. Not sure about the information part, but I remember that. <laughs> there going to be a quiz? I don't know. But there was a lot of a lot of a lot of inpouring. Um, you're like an open vessel, and they take a funnel and they just funnel in so much information and and everything. And I and I really believe that that dismisses any kind of fear or, um, and especially for a child, I think. For me, I really knew that that Jesus loved children. I could I could tell he knew exactly how to um, approach, and and I never was scared. I was never frightened. I was extremely at peace with him. So, one of the things that struck me about uh, the the whole near death experience that you described was designed. You know, I believe that all of these are very personalized. And for a 12-year-old, it was probably a perfect introduction to heaven with great comfort and great um, empathy and um, compassion. So yeah, you said that uh, Jesus and his angels were like a team. How, describe what that was about. They were. They just seemed like they were friends, like best friends. You know, um, they came together. I knew that Jesus was there that they had this great respect and regard for him you could see he was the the leader in the in this light you know he had this tremendous light and um and and you knew that they had they had a purpose with him uh it was their job or mission um like a a hierarchy almost so you just knew they worked together mm. he brought them with him um and um yeah and the, the three of them you know were were he he was he was the one who greeted me and actually held me and they came and they just stayed it was just like we were this little group it was nice it's really nice and then jesus said he was going to take you home yeah he he was you know and and i remember when he said take me home and i thought we were going to go to my grandma's house 
<laughs> and, and, and my grandma and I always watched Mod Squad and the FBI. And that was our show. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, we're going to go. And I, then I remember, you know, he said home, but there was this like, he, he just made it feel like everyday life, except it was this, the safety was amazing. And so he took me um, home. And, um, and I, I really, I gotta say, Lee, I remember, you know, I can really see how there comes a point where you don't look back, you just look forward. And I hit that point. And then right before I started to not look back anymore and just look forward to going with him where, where we were going and no longer looking back. And then I heard this horrible screaming and I, it, it sort of, it sort of shocked me out of my bliss. And I looked down and I saw my mother at the bottom of the hill. And, um, and so that sort of set me on a different trajectory because then I real realized that my leaving would cause great pain for them. And it was, you know, I was really torn between that and um and so that was difficult. you say in your book your mother was running around in circles like a chicken with her head cut off yeah, holding her yeah, hands on yeah. top of her head <laughs> she looked so silly and, and screaming and, <laughs> screaming and, and she actually she lost it when we got to the hospital she she actually um was given uh, medication to calm her down she was hysterical mm. um at, you know, once we finally reached the hospital, she held it together till we got there. <laughs> and then she, she, and I was in complete composure and they just couldn't figure it out. Cause I'm smiling and having conversations and they're all just looking at me like how, what, what kind of endorphins or what is going on here? Yeah. And, and then um, once they saw my injuries that they, they knew there was no scientific reason. So and it happened to be a Catholic hospital because we were in Pennsylvania and there were no hospitals where we were. There was no 911, no cell phones. So they had to drive me with a volunteer car um, all the way to New York. And when they got to New York, that was a, that was a long drive. They didn't have a siren or anything. I just laid in the back seat of a car. And when we got there, you know, the stretchers came and there was lots of a big fuss. I just wanted to get home to watch Mod Squad with my grandma and FBI and <laughs> and find my dog Heidi and yeah. and I that's how good I felt Lee that's yeah. how how like that's how complete he returned me um in, in, in completely fine I mean I came back fine and do you, do you recall um any of the the physical transportation, because in the meantime, you're up in the air with Jesus. Were you at both locations? You feel like you had bilocated? Do you have any memory of the, of the, of the physical body being transferred to New York? That happened after he returned me to uh, my body. I got you. So okay. I was up in, I, ha I was up with him in, you know, in, in, in at home. Oh, that's right. He returns you to, to that he same place at the, at the top he, of the hill. Yeah, he returns me. And that's where, 
he said some things to me and I remember speaking with him and we said our, you know, we sort of said our goodbyes and my mother had heard cause they were almost to the top of the hill. He waited until they came and then he left. And my mom said, who are you talking to? And who was talking to you? I heard a voice here. And then they all looked at her like, you have to be careful when you say things like that. Cause you worry, <laughs> you know, she's like, I heard a voice here and people, you know, everyone in the family was like, she, did she, you know, and I'm saying, yes, he did. And um, they just really thought I would be dead when they saw me. They right. came to the hop- top of the hill to find a corpse because there was no escaping that, that ski, you know, the ending of the tow rope, there was no escaping. But so, while you were, while you were lying there, I guess before they got to you, uh, you saw heaven. Yes. Yeah. So when I hit, you know, when he came with the two angels, then he carried me to heaven. And there I had an amazing experience while they were trying to come get me. So that was really the 45 minutes of that I can account for in in human time, in earth time, um, in real time. So they they were trying to get to the top of the hill. It took them about 45 minutes. I was probably gone for that long. As as far as we can tell by by the counting of the steps, so there I went to heaven and I had this this phenomenal experience there. Um, what do you see? Well, when we got there, it looked like a, I saw a big tree. I remember this really really cool big tree, and we went to the tree and we sat down under it. And then there, you know, we I sat on his lap and we were sitting there, and then. Um, then came like a group to greet us. Um, I want to say, I call them a council. I, I didn't know a word at 12 years old. So it was a group of, a group of beings. Um, they looked official. Um, they looked like they were loving, but they had a, they asked questions. They, they were coming to take me somewhere. And I, I just kept asking if I could go home to my family, you know, my mom and dad, um, I was worried and they kept putting me at ease and they tried to convince me there was nothing to worry about. Everything was taken care of and everyone would be okay. And, and, and it was this sort of really quick back and forth of why isn't she staying? Like they expected me to want to stay. And they were confused as to why I wanted to return. It, it wasn't expected. I could see that that there was like a, a question. They just thought it would be an easy transition. <laughs> and I sort of sort of put a kink in the chain when I said no. And uh, that surprised me and it surprised them. But in that experience, Lee, I learned how much they listened to me. They could hear my heart. They could hear what I was feeling what I was thinking, what I wanted, and, and they didn't dismiss it. They, mm-hmm. they really took the time to, to figure out what do we do next? How do we, how do we work with this within, you know, within their, their system? And, um, and they did take the time. And then they reached a point where they, they seemed like, I remember thinking, they don't have the answer because there was, they were in a circle and they just kept chatting 
And then another group came in more and more, but um, that's a whole, that was a whole thing. So you said, I think at first there were, you estimated about 50 uh, beings and then it, it yeah. turned into more like a hundred. Yeah. And if you've ever, if you ever um, stood on the top of a, a, a mountain um, and look out and you can see the land like farmland and you, it seems like you can see for miles. And yes. so we went to, we went to this place called high rock, I think it's called. And I tried to describe in the book what heaven looked like to me. And when I stood on this rock, I could see for miles. I said to my husband, how far is that? He said, probably 30 miles. So I said, well, that's how heaven looked to me. So I, I described that. And these beings came from towns, you know, different towns. And they came um, to assist each other in following some sort of law, like some sort of order that, you know, some sort of perfect decision-making process. And so they, they gathered and they kept gathering and gathering until they came to the right answer. And I realized that's how much your free will is, you know, now later in life, I see how much they, your free will is honored um, and listened to and, and examined and, and assisted. So they tried to do everything they could to, to make this right for every, everyone. And, um, and at the end of the day, there wasn't an answer. They, um, and then they looked really miffed. And I remember thinking, oh my, you know, I'm really causing problems here. And it was just this process. And I remember then, then they woke up well, along came this being that was, um, he had me study his face. I had no idea who he was and it was very chiseled and he was an older man and he looked really grumpy. He looked like if you wake him up, you really better know why. And so he was like an elder and he let me know, he let me know an age to him for some reason. And I think it was connected to wisdom. So he was somehow in charge of wisdom and knowledge and he showed me lots of things, buildings of things that housed. Um, it, I thought they were books and films. It was like recorded information. Um, I don't know how to translate that at 12. So through my life, it, it looked like universities or some sort of, it was just some sort of housing of records. And it, it was to let me know. Um, you know, that, that things have a system and they were going to do everything they could to make sure the right things were done and how, you know, and for me, because of what I want, what I was expressing, it was, it was just a real collaboration. So this, this being took you on a tour. Yeah. He took me on a tour and I think it was to buy time, to be honest. He was buying buying some time and I think he was a little irritated. He had to wake up. I know, I know they, they, they joked a lot when I was there and like, there was humor. There was lots of humor. And, and the humor was, you know, waking him up was like just waking up a grumpy old bear. Like you better know what, like no one wanted to wake him. And so (laughs) they were like, can't we figure this out? Like it, you know, do do we really have to go wake up the supervisor? You know, like you don't want to have to do that. 
And I always got that same feeling as a nurse when you have to call the doctor. You try everything you can before you have to call the doctor. So you, you try and you do your best um, with, what you, what, with what your parameters are. So they had parameters. That's the correct word. Um, yeah, so he gave me a tour before returning. And then, um, and then I got to meet. Um, I came back with Jesus. And then at that time, um, they, they really had no decision and it was, it was exhausting. Um, I remember they were just, they were, it was, it was kind of comical because they were like, what do we do now? And and they wanted to hide the fact that they were saying, what do we do now? Mm. So, um, at the end, um, they had to contact, uh, they went to contact. And again, it was this, like, who's going to go? Like who wants to be the one to have to go do this? Cause we couldn't handle it. So they did go. And that's when I saw this, this, you know, gorgeous golden light. And, and through this golden light came a big giant, almost, it was another hand, like a, almost like an arm. It just reached it. I don't know if it was actually a hand, but the golden light felt like one cause it reached. And when that light reached, that light had wisdoms that were, the ultimate wisdom, like you knew everyone was so relieved because here came the real wisdom, you know, the, the, the superior, the all, all knowing. And then that touched Jesus and then myself and, um, and it was all connected. So, you know, you talk about oneness and so Jesus and that light were connected. And so they were one. Um, but it was a beautiful demonstration for me to to see that golden light. And when I see gold, I still think of that golden light. And then I knew whatever that answer was, it was going to be the right answer. I knew they took the time and they they went to the top. <laughs> they went to the top, top of the, the hierarchy. And uh, and then with that, I was returned. But I was told it would be difficult. And I was told, you know, they were really concerned. They weren't, they were never, um, they never talked down to me. They never made me feel as a child that I was, they were, they never made me feel they were superior to me or uh, nothing like that. They were, they were collaborative. It was like, it was just this intelligence and collaboration and, and love all blended together. Everything you you would think you need for the recipe of a perfect decision. And, um, and in that came the decision and they, they were sad for me, you know, they were worried for me and they were concerned, you know, and they escorted me back. And they, well, they, me- were, they did warn you that uh, you might have to endure a terrible yeah. pain. And they were just kept saying, are you sure, sweetheart? Are you sure? Do you really, you know, it's going to be so painful. And they were just so, they were just so, um, but they were honoring, honoring me in the same time in what I, what I was choosing. And so they did return me. And um, of course, I always knew that it was not my choice alone. It was, I felt like it's part of a part. The decisions are part of a bigger picture. And I knew there was a big picture and each of us is just a piece of it. 
So I didn't know exactly why, but I knew it was a gift. Even though I would be in pain, I felt like they gave me a great gift. And um, there, there's a, a a line in your book that I I really loved. It's they said I was a sweetheart. I heard the yeah. word sweetheart several times. The yeah. communication was like music without lyrics, speaking without words. It was like looking in someone's eyes and seeing their souls and understanding it completely. I thought that was that's, that's that's the the words when I wrote. I was always in seclusion, and I always asked for guidance for words, and because words are so hard to match to the experience, and the, they always gave me the words. Because Lee, I was not a writer. I didn't even write a Christmas card or birthday <laughs> cards. That <laughs> was a terrible. My father would always say, "We'll just pick up our birthday cards because she's never going to write them or send them." And so writing for me was a, was an effort, and and I was helped when I asked for um, guidance and and instruction how to write, and it really came out. I thought the book came out like a sort of just like a good old campfire story um, <laughs> that you can read really quickly. And I wanted people to be able to just get what they needed. You can even just read one chapter and that'll have what you, what you might be interested in. Mm. It, that, that to me was brilliant. And on the part of the guidance I got that I received. Um, so then, then Jesus returns, returns you at that point. Yeah. Yes. And, and uh, you said you were lying there on your side with the, in a pool of blood described. Yes. Describe I remember that. when, when he returned me because it's such, it's such an event when you re-enter your physical body. And, and, and I don't, I didn't really know there was a separation until when I returned it. I, I just knew that. I could sense that it was very cold. The snow all of a sudden was starting to make me shiver. And I looked and my eyes were able to open and I looked at the snow. Um, and and I, then I could see all the blood and there was, there was so much blood. Um, when I got to the hospital, they took my shirt, they cut it off and they literally wrung it out. It was a long sleeve turtleneck and they wrung it out in the sink several times. That's how much blood. I had lost and, um, and, uh, and I, I remember then recognizing the physical, what, and they told me, they said, don't be afraid, but you know, you're going to have pain and, and, and it's not going to be easy. And, um, you know, cause they can't promise, um, here. I feel like, you know, they were honest and, um, and I did have pain. I mean, even after my experience, I was never, I was, ne- I did not live a life that didn't include pain and suffering. I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of, you know, the journey and, uh, and they let me know and they felt sad that that was going to happen. Little did I know they, they sort of dropped another gift, which was a spontaneous healing. And, um, and so I didn't know what to call that at 12 years old. And uh, I just knew everyone called me a miracle when I got to the hospital. The nuns, it was a Catholic hospital, and the nuns came in like a sea of nuns. I'm not kidding, Lee. I couldn't even see the end of the hallway. And they just all came in, and they, and they wanted to put this plaque up in commemoration of the, of the, of the miracle at Bon Secures Hospital. And, and they came 
And so because my mother hushed me not to talk about it before we got there in the car on the ride there, she said, shh, you know, because I was so euphoric, I wanted to jabber about it all day long. Oh, she said, no, 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 no. And, you know, stay quiet. And, and also, you know, then I quickly got a sense of it's not safe somehow to talk about. I, I didn't, it, it made me pause and I trusted her. So I didn't, but then the nuns came and confirmed everything for me <laughs> because they knew that, Oh, it's a miracle. And so for me, it integrated it very quickly because they, I, I got to know, I was like, they know, they know these things happen, you know, and they're, I was like, Oh, they know. And so miracles for me became, um, special and everywhere. And I, and I just pay attention to them more, you know, and, and I enjoy them more. Um, and, and so that was a wonderful experience. Yeah. You wrote when I returned, my mother, really had to guard me because my heart was so innocently wide open and unprotected. Oh, yeah. I, I trusted, that everyone, trusted that everyone was good. I did. I did <laughs> for most of my life, Lee. I, and, I, and I slip and I fall back to that a lot. And I, I could get myself killed doing it. So, But I remember my mother was constantly, I would give away my toys. I would give away my belongings. If someone said, I like that, here, it's yours. I thought we're all one. We're all connected. Um, everyone knows each other's feelings and thoughts like I had felt there. There's this perfect understanding. And um, I just thought people can read each other so effortlessly. It, I didn't know how to separate from that. Mm. It, it was um, because I the beings I had met, Everyone understood everyone so effortlessly. Everyone spoke to each other, knowing your intentions and your heart and your thoughts and your your whole full self. And so I always get frustrated here, you know, as a child, how much time we spend on saying, did I say that correctly? You hope the person understands you correctly. Did I use the right words? It, you apologize, hoping your apology is correct. <laughs> it's so frustrating after having an experience like that, where you know that we can instantly see and feel what the other person or the other being is, is thinking and feeling. So that was a struggle for me and, and, a, and a heartache, a, a terrible heartache. I had to figure that out on my own, how to fit in. I had to find a quick, and I, and I was going into teenage years where, you know, it was very turbulent. How do you fit in? So right. different world. What an experience. Yeah, it's, it was, it was, it changed <laughs> my life. You yeah. devote a whole chapter uh, in your book to the light, describing the light. And uh, it, it's really lovely. Uh, yeah. And and then you go on and say the being I will always know to be Jesus had extraordinary love that blended with the light and made it shine. Love is the light. It's just so connected. Everything's so connected and um and unforgettable because even though I was hushed and even though I didn't have the experience to 
I didn't find anyone else who had a near-death experience in my lifetime as far as a discussion with them until I was, till after I wrote my story in seclusion, I didn't, I didn't ever know there was others, um, except once in a while patients when they were, I knew patients had experiences when they had trauma from uh, surgery or accidents. Um, but, and, you know, so I just, I just was in seclusion and wrote my story. And after I did all kinds of doors opened up and here I am speaking with you and meeting so many others and so many people that have had, um, extraordinary uh, experiences with the light. Mm. Um, and I, I always wonder, love to hear about it. I'm, I'm so glad uh, that you're joining the group of, uh, of us who've talked about these experiences, because if enough people heard these stories and realized their truth, we could change the world. You know, the beauty I, of that you saw in heaven, the 30 miles of, of, of view we have here on earth, if we would only, uh, treat it right and treat one another right. 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 And, and every now and then you see big glimpses of it or you see the, you know, you see the light shining through others. You see people that are so inspirational, you know, or even when you see a child that's born and they play the piano, like a concert pianist and you wonder how did that happen or just so many different, different, but actually being on, on your program, feels very much to me. I hope you accept this in as, as a compliment, but it, it feels very much to me. Like when, um, when I was with Jesus and I met people that were very accepting and loving. So I feel like when I meet other experiencers, I, I get to get that piece of heaven mm. um, connection. And, and, and in that it's just, it's so relaxing and, and rewarding in the sense of knowing that there's others who are, are trying to, to let that light shine. You know, yeah. it's, it's important. It's important. Well, it's, uh, you become um, really aware of it when you go to uh, one of these in-person Lions <clears throat> conferences. It's a terrible disappointment to, to do it on Zoom compared to being in a room with maybe 200 people who've had a near-death experience. Wow. It's, it's, it's very uh I have yet to experience that, so I'm really looking forward to it. Um I, I really am looking forward to it. It's so exciting to me to think of, of what that might be like. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for telling this story. Um and and you did receive a message, you say in the book, lovingly share this with others, which you've just done, and anyone's life you touch will only benefit from it. And I can't help but agree that that is true. I hope everyone shares their stories. I think I think our true stories are 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 the most important thing to share because we can all benefit and learn from each other and 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 light each other's light. I know many times my light gets dim in life when I have hardships, and there's always someone that comes along and lights that light again, and it's just it's just a wonderful thing. So. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful experience. <laughs> um, 
I'm for so me, happy for, to for know me too. you. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know you too, Suzanne. I'll try and to keep my boundaries. I'm sending you a big hug. <laughs> that's Thank fine. You for having me. I'm uh, still 12 years old sometimes when I tell the story because I get to keep that childlike piece of me through it. And, and it's really, it's really something. So I hope it helps others, Lee. I hope anyone who listens knows how loved they are and that you really are listened to and cared for perfectly. Thank you. It's because of people like you that this show is a success. Well, listen, my thanks to you, Suzanne Seymour, for sharing the, the amazing story of your childhood NDE and, if folks would like to find your book, uh, My Secrets from Heaven, or find out more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, my book is on Amazon, My Secrets from Heaven. It's on Amazon. Um, and I'm a very accessible person, so that's where it is. In my story, I knew the reason I wrote a book was I knew that that was probably a good way for people to read about it privately at home. It's a quick read and I thought they can gain quickly from it. If you're in the bathtub or you, I know the other day I had a really tough day and I, you know, sometimes you just gain strength from grabbing a hold of something that might add more light to your life and more inspiration or more, more insight or more Mm. comfort. It's really comforting. Yes. Um, And the comfort we, we just can't get enough in this world of comfort. So um, <laughs> we got to comfort each other. <laughs> well, especially in these, sometimes. <laughs> these times of, of COVID and other oh, natural and unnatural disasters. Natural and unnatural. And so <laughs> the one thing we do have is we do have our ability to have compassion and love and kindness. And that's so healing and so invigorating, too. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site, hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share our NDE radio Facebook page. Just search NDE radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday. 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.